I've been reading, I think, too many books on what's going on in our world today, and I think maybe I need to go back and just read a couple of novels or something other than what I've been reading, because my heart is a little heavy with with what I see. Uh, obviously, watching the news is not healthy to your emotional state, and uh, uh, the books I've been reading, I highly recommend uh, a, a couple of them. Uh, the... Uh, I wish I could name one of them for you right now. Um, I should have written it down. The uh, Politically Incorrect Guide to uh, Global Warming is incredibly uh, well detailed by a scientist and taking on the skeptic side of the argument, which was very interesting for me. Long, a little bit detailed, but I strongly recommend it. Uh, they do not have a Politically Incorrect Guide, which is really a conservative viewpoint of most of the issues, and I really enjoy those books. I probably read, I don't know, six of them anyway. But they don't have one yet on critical race theory, but I, I did I did read one just recently, or actually I'm almost all the way through one that was um, written by an African-American theologian and a PhD member of the Southern Baptist Convention which is very good, and I'd tell you his name if I could remember it. I can't even remember the name of the book, but if you're interested, I can get it for you. Excellent, excellent job on, on the impact of critical race theory. Uh, he calls it CRT-I as he talks about intersectionality. Very, a very good treatise of the thing, but also very troubling. There's also a book that I, I read, and this one is a little too technical, uh, in, in that you have to be awake to, to read it. Uh, and it's the uh, the politically incorrect guide to socialism. That was like taking a college course on socialism, but from the conservative side. Very, very well done. Uh, I, I wish these guys would give us an outline of the main points. Uh, even their summary chapters are too complex. I'd like to have a, a eight by ten cheat sheet with all the notes on there that are pertinent. You know, and uh, I guess you got to go back through the book again and pull them out. I don't know, but. It's got me thinking a lot about my generation. My generation is before most of your generations, and the truth is, although there were a lot of very brave and, and uh, uh, courageous people that uh, I knew uh, through the years, overall, I don't think that our uh, I, overall, I don't think that our uh, behavior in the '60s was that good. I started ninth grade in 1960. It, Seems like when, when someone says, you know, I go to the hospital and they say, what is your birthday? And I go, 1946. I go, oh, my God, that sounds like a million years ago, you know. Yeah. What happened? I don't know what happened, you know. In 1960, I was a ninth grader and I had no clue what was ahead for me. Uh, I had no clue what was ahead for my generation. I didn't know that we would be uh, the opposite from the greatest generation. My mother's generation was called the greatest generation. I think it's clear that my generation was the worst generation. Uh, although there's times I look at the news now and I wonder if we're really worst or just tied for third place. Uh, our contribution in the 60s has not been good. And I'm, wasn't then, but now pretty embarrassed by our behavior. Our contribution was an epidemic of immorality, an epidemic of disease and rebellion we made our drug, our drug addictions mainstream. We brought it right into the mainstream. We brought it into the colleges. We brought it into the military. We brought it into our culture. 
I don't know what happened. <laughs> I really don't. Why couldn't we just get drunk like my mother's generation did? I don't know. In all fairness, we didn't start all of these problems. When you start looking at the roots of what's wrong with the world today, I would like to say what's wrong with America, but this is a worldwide issue. And all of these issues are affecting the whole world. And we need to come to grips with it or we're going to be in deep trouble. And in all fairness, we didn't start these problems. But somehow we managed to take them and run with them. We managed to get them near the goalpost, you know. We didn't help. The corruption that was in our government at the time was evident then, but I didn't see it. I only learned 20, 30 years later what was going on in Washington while we were over in the Southeast Asia thinking we were fighting for freedom, you know. Education had taken a serious turn towards atheism in the days that I was there. I was there when they banned prayer in the public schools. I was there when they banned the reading of the Bible. I used to stand up and do the Pledge of Allegiance, and, and we used to say the Lord's Prayer every day. Not that I think there's any magic in that. I don't, but it certainly talked about a cultural shift, a cultural shift that wasn't good. They silenced the Christians, but they allowed the atheists to keep talking. Throughout this decade of the 60s, it was a simmering cauldron of racial unrest. It, it perpetrated all the way down into the Marine Corps and into the Navy where I was. It was a problem everywhere we went, and it was a solution that we never found. I wish it were different. When I started school, a lot of the schools were segregated. Mine never were. But we had uh, oftentimes the first people of color on our football team that we uh, we're embarrassed to say we're the best athletes on our team and we're glad to have them, you know. Nothing, nothing helps race relations more than winning a football game, you know. But the, during the 60s, the seams of our culture, those things that stitched us together were showing signs of serious wear. That was 50 years ago. 50 years ago. And for the most part, you know, I became a Christian after that and I got settled down and I didn't pay much attention to it until things got really bad. So for the next 30 or 40 years, I spent my time studying theology and working in the church and really didn't think too much about cultural issues. You know, when I, when I was young, I, I was of the attitude that burn it all down. Now when I hear people talking about burning it all down, it frightens me. It worries me that we're at that culture. I don't think I meant it. My fear is that they do. So everything that we might consider wrong today was present then, but just not in the level to which we see. Looking back, I can see we're kind of like Babylon. I don't know if you remember the fall of Babylon when we went through that in the book of Daniel, but while, while Belshazzar was uh, partying and getting drunk with all his nobles and while the Babylonians were asleep, the Medo-Persian Empire had invaded their country, and for three days they never knew they were conquered. And they finally woke up one day and found out that their country was gone. This is my fear for our country. What does this have to do with First John? I hope to connect it. Those destructive seeds of the 60s have come of age, and it's an issue that I don't think we in the church can ignore. The seeds of our present problems were visible to those who could see it then. I had my eyes closed. But now those weeds have matured and we awaken to find ourselves in a raging war with ourselves. We're at war with one another and don't even know it, don't even know why. 
people screaming at everybody, and we're not sure what's going on all around us, and yet it was there 50 years ago. I was asleep. Most of us were. David asks a question here. Uh, well, it's on. That's on. There we go. Uh, David asked the question here, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer is in our passage today, pray. In a way, that's all we can do. It seems to me we've entered a new phase in our world's history, not just national, but world. And the changes that are surfacing in our cultural culture today will profoundly affect our future. And we need to wake up. It's those changes that are frightening me. I don't think we can ignore these new threats to our churches and our cities any longer. But the question, of course, is what can I do? And that had me thinking about what the disciples asked the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in the, in the Olivet Discourse, when he went to explain what it was going to be like in the last days, and I certainly hope we're in the last days. You'll hear a lot of people say, oh yeah, we're in the last days. Well, if we're not, we're in bigger trouble than we than, than uh, we're in bigger trouble if we're not in the last days than we are if we are in the last days. I mean, at least in the last days, it's going to end it all. If we're not in the last days, I really worry about what the future holds for us. I really wonder what's next if this isn't the last days. But Jesus said these words: "Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many." And as I read that this week, I was thinking he was saying many are going to come along and say, and I have the answer, I have the answer, I have the answer. But they don't. You know. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. We've certainly heard of that. We've had our belly full of it for the last 120 years. See that you be not troubled. Troubled is that agitated state you're in when you're worried about things. And the problem is I am troubled. It troubles me. I'm not supposed to be troubled. I'm supposed to approach it with faith. For all these things, he said, must come to pass. God has a plan. Hopefully we're at that plan where this trouble is appropriate. But the end is not yet. That's a troubling passage. God says, do not be troubled, but the end is not yet. Well, they were asking him, when is the end? That's not the end. It's going to get like this, but we're still not at the end. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom, famine and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. This is just the beginning. You know. And when you look at that passage, and, and this is what's applying, because my subject today is prayer, which is probably the worst subject in the world for me to ever try to teach on is prayer. I've had the worst prayer life of probably any preacher on the planet and still learning how to pray. Uh, but Jesus makes second, seven recommendations in this Matthew 24 passage that I wanted to share as an introduction to the three verses that John gives us. All right. First, he says, take heed that no man deceive you. It's important that we pay attention and be on the right side of history. I spent a lot of my time on the wrong side. It's important that we get on the right side. And then be not troubled. Don't let it agitate you. Understand God has a plan. These things must come to pass. God has a plan. We don't need to be frightened. We are his people. He will not abandon us. Now, I believe in pre-tribulation rapture, so I really believe. And I, I almost said hope. I really believe that before it really gets bad, 
whatever those words mean, where he's going to lift us out of here. Nonetheless, it's easy to focus all on the negative and lose your ability to trust God. Be not troubled, he said. Times will get very tough, but we must endure to the end. We must set our head, our face like flint to follow the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of what's going on around us. We may, must make a decision that live or die, we're going to stay true to Him. To the best of our ability, and then we have to leave it in His hands. Verse 14, He tells us in that Matthew 24 passage, we must share the Gospel. We can't let what's going on in our world today silence us. We must share the Gospel. Now, I remember Jim Elliott used to say, I'll be happy when I've told everyone once. I don't even care if I have to tell them twice. The point is, our responsibility is to share the gospel with someone once. We don't have to beat our brows over the fact that they're not getting saved. That's not our business. Our business is to share the gospel. And we must pray for God's protection in our lives. Now we're getting into the realm of which John is talking about. We also have to keep watch. Jesus said, for you know not when your Lord is coming. So we need to stay alert. You see that? We need to be careful. We need to not let the troubles overwhelm us. We must make a plan to endure to the end, even if it costs us our lives. We must be willing to share the gospel. We must pray for God's protection in our lives, and we have to keep our eyes open. And finally, he said, therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. You know, Luke, uh, Luke, Luke wasn't there. He was a physician, but he got this. He got this from the uh, the boys interviewing the other disciples. And I, I like this verse because it kind of wraps it all together. Watch therefore and pray always. This is something we should have. We should be in prayer about that we may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So it's in our next passage that John speaks about prayer. Verse 13, 14, and 15. Just three verses. Next week, if the Lord leads me and I can figure it out, uh, we're going to go into uh, those you should pray for and those you shouldn't pray for. Uh, the sin unto death. Uh, it's been a troubling passage for theologians ever since John penned those words. But in our passage today, these things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Our confidence in prayer is founded on the assurance that we know we have eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not have eternal life, or you don't know, there's no way to pray properly. If you're not praying in the name of your personal Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only prayer you can possibly pray is the prayer of repentance and ask Jesus to save you. But if you're saved, you have this confidence. These things I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know seven times in this chapter. John writes, we know. We know, we know. And I'll probably use that to introduce the subject next week. And this is the confidence that we have, he writes. i got to get my little squirrely thing in place here. It's not working here. I don't know what's happening here. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You can know that God hears you. 
And if we know that he hears us whatsoever ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Jesus said, uh, whatsoever you ask the Father, in my name that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. And then a few chapters later, he writes, and in that day she shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Confidence in prayer. This is what John is saying. If you know that you know him, you have confidence that when you go to him, he is in fact going to answer our prayers. That is the promise. That is the promise. Of course, there's a lot of caveats to that. Jesus uh, speaking. Uh, John, in that previous passage, adds the requirement according to thy will. Jesus, uh, John adds, adds the requirement according to thy will. And as believers, we have confidence that God will answer the prayer, but we always have this little, this little irritating requirement that it has to be according to his will. But when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he, he introduced the Lord's, the Lord's prayer. It probably called the disciples' prayer. It was teaching the disciples to pray. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we always begin our prayer with thanking God and praising God for who he is. We spend our time beginning offering praise to God. And then we put in this little phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my life on earth as it is in heaven. When we come into the presence of Almighty God in prayer, our first thought must be to recognize and honor his glory and his majesty. It doesn't hurt to mention a few nice things that he's done in our lives and thank him for them. God loves a thankful heart. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Praiseworthy is your name. It's embarrassing how often when I go to prayer, I find myself making this list out for God. I kind of take my to-do list off the table and I kind of read it to him, you know. And it's embarrassing because he knows what my needs are and he'll move to solve them before I even ask him. And truth is, if I'm not giving him my list of things to do, I really don't know what I'm supposed to tell him. Except to shut up and maybe listen. The truth is, he's not my servant. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's not some lover that you pull the lever and all our wishes come true. None of those things. He's the sovereign king of the universe. We would be wise to remember that when we pray. It's not about us. It's about him. It's not about our plans, but his plans. Now in the chapter, in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 11, he, he, he records another saying of Jesus on the subject of prayer. And Jesus said this, Mark's, book but Jesus's words for verily uh, uh, or truly uh, I say without doubt uh, we would say I say to you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain be thou removed and be cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass he shall have whatever he saith therefore I say unto you what things soever you desire when ye pray believe that you receive them and ye shall have them That's harder to do than it says. When you read that, 
you would think, ah, yeah, that sounds good, but how does that work? The, the best I can come up with when I pray a prayer, and I really want it to be, is I have to pray, God, if it's your will, you'll do it. If it's not your will, you won't do it. I believe that. I, I don't really see me changing God's will. Mark adds this in, in that same passage. Uh, it's just the next two verses. So the first thing I do when I come to God in prayer, I have to believe that He answers my prayer. You know, Hebrews says you have to believe that He is and is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. When you come to God in prayer, you have to believe that He's there listening to you. And you have to believe that He cares enough to answer your prayer. You have to believe. A prayer has to be made in faith, trusting Him and not our own ability. It's not some show that we put on and it's not some magic act and He's not some genie. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe who loves us enough to listen to our prayers, which is in itself almost unbelievable. Continuing to quote Jesus, Mark adds, and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have ought against any. Now, it isn't if anyone has ought against you. It's if you have a problem with someone else, you have to forgive them. God is not going to approve or answer our prayers if our hearts are wrong with our brothers and sisters. I've if there's anything about prayer I've proven over the years is I've proven that. All i got to do is get in a fight with my wife and I might as well just be praying to a rock as praying to anyone because God's not listening to me at all. I have to settle things with my wife or my children or the person, the, the co-worker that I'm working with before I, my prayers even make it above the ceiling. I can feel the deadness all around me. I remember one time when God was calling me into the ministry, I, I made a snip remark to the pastor who said to me, when you're ready to preach, you know, uh, just let me know. Well, I had told God if he wanted me to be a pastor, have the guy ask me to preach. So when I walked out of his house, I said, Lord, you didn't, he didn't ask me to preach. I haven't told the preacher anything about this. I don't know where he's even getting that information unless it's coming from God, but he didn't ask me to preach. He said, when I was ready, and I looked up at God as I opened the screen door, and I said, God, I'll never be ready. And I could feel heaven close up. It was like I could hear the cloud slamming shut. It's like the angels were protecting God from my, my blasphemy and protecting me from God's righteous anger. And I didn't hear from him for six months. That's the way it is when you're out of fellowship with someone. You have to be in fellowship with some. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Basically, the communications are closed. Well, here we see that if we want our prayers answers, we must believe God. See, this is James. But let him ask in faith. We have to believe that God is going to answer our prayer. So we have to approach him often as I do. Lord, I believe, but you're going to have to help me where I doubt because I have doubts. I wonder what your will is and I want to do your will, but I can't always see it. We have to approach him from a position of faith. James adds, is that what I have up there? Yeah, but let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. The basis of the relationship is faith. Now you go to John, 
verse 15, I should have put all three of them up here because they really all tie together as I, as I make this conclusion. Uh, John writes in, in conclusion, if we know that he hears us, whatever we're asking, if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now, there are six results to this when we pray. We should have confidence when we approach God in prayer. Confidence is never in ourselves. It's always in God. It's always in the fact that he loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And as Paul said, if God would offer his son on our behalf, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? The point is, we have to approach God with the confidence that he loves us even though we are unlovable. Even though we are not worthy of him answering our prayers. We have to come in faith, believing that God is interested in our lives. That's not always easy to do. Secondly, we must come into his presence. We can't just stand there reciting some vague uh, statement of faith and expect God to be answering our prayers. We have to, when we bow our heads and our hearts, we have to imagine ourselves stepping into the presence of Almighty God because it is to Him that we address our petitions. The third point John makes is we have to come into His presence and ask. James writes, you have not because you ask not. You know, sometimes we just expect a God to do certain things. And sometimes he doesn't do them. Since God hears everything. Well, let me go one more. We have to ask according to his will. You know, since God hears everything and even knows our unspoken requests, I, I'm, I, I'm starting to pray every day and I, I finally... At some point in the prayer, we'll say, Lord, you know my list. You know, he's heard it so many times. You know, please protect my sister. Please give strength to my niece. Please save my brother-in-law. Please do this. Please do that. He knows the list. He can remember it better than I can. But biblical prayer is not trying to talk God into giving us what we want. That's not biblical prayer at all. Rather, it's submitting our will to his will. And I, quite frankly, have trouble with that. It's praying, as Jesus instructed us, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, Jesus said, if it were possible, let this cup pass. The cup would be the cup of sin that he took on himself as he went to the cross to die in our place. If there's any other way, Jesus said, I'd like it to pass. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be whipped within an inch of my life and then be nailed to a cross and then die slowly gasping for air. I don't want this, Father. But he ended that sentence with, nevertheless, not my will but thine. Powerful pray. It would be the height of stupidity for me to pray for my will to be done. It would be the height of stupidity for you to pray that your will would be done. I mean, it would do a lot of things. First of all, it displaces God from heaven and puts you on the throne. But that's beside the point. The fact is, even if we did displace God and we were on the throne, we still wouldn't know what to do. If I was given three wishes or ten wishes or complete authority as God has sovereignty over the entire universe, I would not know what to do. 
I wouldn't know where to begin with the problems of our world. It's too overwhelming. Just the own problems in my own life are too overwhelming. I have to put it in his hand and believe that he loves me enough to take care of me. I have to put it in his hands and believe that he will do what he needs to do and what he does is always right. I have to understand that I don't know better than God. It's the essence of all prayer. And fifth, since we know that he hears us, John writes, we know that we have the requests which we asked of him. We know God answers prayers, and we know he asks them if they're asked in accordance with his will. We know that. Seven things we know in this chapter. But then the caveats. It may not happen when we want it. It may not happen the way we want it. And sometimes the answer is just not yet. Not yet. Abraham prayed for a son and God agreed to give him a son. But Abraham waited 25 years till Isaac was in his arms. And there's a lot in scriptures about the importance of learning to wait on God. It's a mistake to approach God in prayer and expect everything we want to happen immediately. Or even the way we want it to happen. Sometimes within his purpose and his wisdom and his plan and his sovereignty, God delays the answers to our prayer for years. I've uh, been praying for that brother-in-law I mentioned earlier for 50 years now. I've only witnessed to him twice. 50 years ago, I had him in my truck, or he was, I was in his. I think he was in my truck. And he had had a big fight with my sister, and, and things were not going well. And, and I, I was a brand-new Christian, didn't have a clue how to witness, and haven't gotten one bit better in 50 years. And I, I said to him, his name's Bob. Everybody in my family's named Bob. It's a wonder we didn't name our dog Bob. Um, I said, Bob, you know Jesus can help. He can change your life. Now, he'd seen that Jesus had changed my life, and he was aware of that because we've had that discussion before. And my point was, Jesus can really help you. And his response to me, that, and I remember sitting in the truck, and I remember him saying this, I don't care about that. All I care about is my family. And I thought that's very sad because that was the week that he left his family forever. He abandoned a 13-year-old girl and he abandoned a 12-year-old son and his wife of, I don't know, 10 years. I don't even remember the ages. But it was tragic. And then later, good grief, I would say 50 years later, at least 40, he had a terrible leg infection. He'd had a scratch on his leg, kind of like whatever started with Linda. And it went into septus, and he was in the hospital, and actually they weren't sure if he was going to live. So I was down in Maryland at the time, and I went to the hospital to visit him. And, and his wife at that time left the room and left me to talk with him, and I did, and I, I, got, I had a really great opportunity to share the gospel with him. And he listened. <laughs> he couldn't walk. He couldn't get away. Uh, he listened. And, and I said, do you believe this? And he said, yes. He said, I believe you're telling me the truth. And I thought, wow, there's progress. It took 50 years, but there's some progress. You know, hey, there's hope. 
I said, would you like me to lead you in a prayer of repentance and to receive Christ as your Savior? Now, this guy may not gonna, he's may, maybe not going to make it through the next two days in the hospital. And he said, no, I'm not, I'm not ready for that yet. And I didn't know what else to say. I said, you, you believe it's true, but you don't want it for yourself. And he said, not yet. It kind of reminded me of that king who said, almost persuaded, you know, what a tragedy. He'd been a good friend of mine my whole life, and to see him perish is just heartbreaking for me. You know. So I left the room. I went, you know, he was in Annapolis, Maryland. I had a long way to go and a lot of people to visit. So I, I left and said, I'll keep praying for you. And he thanked me for the visit. He was glad to see me. Obviously, we'd both changed a lot from the early days when we were both lost and building houses together and acting inappropriately most of the time. You know. My last visit to him was two years ago. Uh, he'd had a major stroke. Now, he survived that stroke. And I, I wasn't going to visit him. His daughter wanted me to. But I wasn't going to go there because I thought, I don't know what to say. And I've said it all. And he was really happy to see me. His wife was there. We went into this brand new living room that he'd built. It's very nice. He's done a great job. He's a woodworker. Uh, but I never brought up the subject of salvation. And I listened carefully to see if he would. He never brought it up. So I left there without saying a word. And I don't expect I'll see him again in his life. I don't know. It's not the kind of thing I pop in on him. You know, I've seen him three times in 50 years, so it isn't like I see him all the time. But I still pray for him. You know, sometimes God says when he answers our prayer, yes. And it's remarkable to me all the things we've been praying for in this church over the years, how many yeses we've received. But sometimes there is a not yet as Abraham received, and sometimes there's a no. You know, James was locked up in jail, John's brother. And we know John must have prayed for God to release him, just like God released Peter from jail. We, had to, we, we have to believe that John was praying for James while he was in jail, and yet God allowed Herod to kill James with the sword. John's request was not granted. I guess you could say it wasn't God's will for James to be delivered from the king. Sometimes God's answer is no. So where do we go from here? We pray in confidence. We, we, we mentally enter his presence, the throne room of the king. We confidently go to him and ask because we know he's the father that created us and loves us. We ask all of our prayers according to his will, not my will, but thine. And since we know that he hears us, we know that he'll answer our prayer. It may not always be what we want to hear, but it's at that point that we say, Lord, I'm going to leave it in your hands. Now, Jesus talks about pestering God with prayer until he answers the prayer. And there are other times 
Jesus just prays once and he leaves it in God's hands. And I don't know how to differentiate between the two except to follow whatever the burden is on your heart, to keep praying until you know he's heard you and then just leave it in God's hands. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity to share your scriptures. Father, I pray that your people would only hear those words that you'd once said and the rest that I said would be ignored. Thank you, Father. If there's anyone here today that's never received Christ as their Savior, I pray that this would be the day that they confess, yes, Lord, I have sinned. I have failed you. Yes, Lord, I have done wrong. Please forgive my sin. And that they would follow up that prayer with asking Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, to come into their lives and save them. Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and save me. And I know that if they pray that, Father, in Jesus' name, they will be saved. Amen.